This is Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to another episode of Thought and Leaders. Now, as you know, I scour this wonderful, beautiful, gorgeous planet of ours to chat with some of the most inspirational uh, thought leaders out there. Now, today is no exception. Joining us from New York is Messiah Rhodes. Hello, Messiah. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? Um, For those people out there who maybe are living in a cave in the middle of Central Park and haven't heard of you, do you want to give us a little bit of a uh, background of who you are? So um, my name is Messiah Rhodes. I'm a filmmaker, um, director, writer, journalist. I just finished up short documentary series, uh, AJ Plus, AJ Contrast. Um, Al Jazeera English at large pretty much produced it. Um, it's a short documentary series um, called Against All Odds, a uh, two-part series, and it deals with um, black women, women of color, and how they're affected by the recidivism rates in um, prisons and jails in America, because the um, United States has, like, the largest prison and jail population in the world, and, like, in human history. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the last project um, I've been working on. So, um, But before that, I've done actually like kind of fun, a little more fun stuff about black history to food safety, all kinds of things. I want to talk about your own background. You had a tough one. Yeah, it's pretty tough with some moments of sunshine in it, pretty much. My parents had me in a very long age. Drug use happened, but also... Um, the system doesn't really support, you know, criminalizes drug use to the point that, you know, it destroys families. Um, I was separated from my parents at the age of um, around four or five years old, and I was um, taken in custody by my grandparents. So I went from, like, living in the projects, like, um, seeing dead bodies in the playground, but also getting super soakers and um, hanging out with the kids in the playground experience in the early 90s in Queens, New York, pretty much, to kind of like the suburban life with my grandparents just up the street with a house and two cars. But then that had some situations too. But eventually um, I was pretty much homeless on the streets when I was a teenager and um, pretty much found my own calling through filmmaking, dancing and um, all kinds of things. And eventually um, I'm now like a filmmaker, writer, Um, got a couple of awards so far. We'll see what happens in the future. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, pretty much separated from my parents for more than 15 years. I didn't really have a reference point. Now I'm with my parents now. Um, we're, we're connected and we're talking, but we don't have like a con- like pretty like things you take for granted. Like, oh, remember when you were 11, you did that and did this and you can laugh about it. Like we have no reference points at all. So it's like interesting trying to build relationship with a, a person that like gave birth to you like a like a friend now because of that unique experience i think it really like allows me to tell stories in a little different way than most people could you know through these trauma and like processing it so and do you think that making these movies they are kind of helping you complete the story of your own story in terms of filling in gaps yeah yeah pretty much because like um i mean a lot of people like saying this project, a particular like kind of positive feedback I'm getting is like, oh, you're brave for making this short documentary series. And I never really um thought of it as being brave. I kind of thought of it, as you said, 
Jonathan is like trying to like fill in the gaps, trying to complete my own story. People don't really survive this kind of story. Like try to unlearn kind of stereotypes I had about, you know, incarceration, about the police and about drugs. And that happened when I was making these projects over the years. And even before that, like uh, my advice, I did like a Black History short documentary series, little like snippet things called Black Photoshop History. So it's just kind of like sloppily photoshopping like moments in history that black people were erased from and um we tell those stories yeah i've seen it brilliant you know we just told of victimhood and oppression but there's reality there's a uh, survival and um, innovation in the american revolution when it comes to afro-americans that they really were heroes weren't they black men and like people of color like spanish like they were they were working on the ports so much and the ships and like they were able to just convert and kind of become like kind of like the first amphibious like uh, marine force in some ways. Wow. Are you telling me that the first SEALs were, were, were Afro-American? <laughs> Not like, you know, your SEALs, I picture like people coming down in helicopters and like <laughs> knocking the <laughs> down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't. I don't think with all the goodwill in the in, in the world that we can start saying that be in the American Revolution they're going to be coming down at helicopter. I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm saying. The Republic is down. Yeah. You talk about the idea of visionists and stuff like that. Yeah. In terms of Black Lives Matter, there's a danger that this could go too much the other way in terms of revisionists and retelling history. I mean, America is interesting because America is a weird place. It'd be like, I don't even know it was a problem. And it'd be like if Britain Britain decided, I mean, to have Nazi statues everywhere because they were bombing London. Like they're celebrating the planes that bombed London for some reason. I mean, that's kind of weird to have that kind of stuff around in Britain. But here in the United States, it's like kind of common to have this kind of relics of the past, to have like strange and kind of disconnected toward the reality of what happened. So that's what, that's what I mean when people, I feel like that's what the revision that people are trying to do. They're trying to do that aspect of it. I don't think necessary. It's like totally like retelling everything and like, then you're not telling the truth anymore. Uh, I just think these people just want to tell the truth. Mm. Yeah. Drawing on your own life and thinking about my life while I'm talking to you about this, Life doesn't go to plan, does it, mate? Oh, no, no, no. Some of these people that they've erected statues for, they did very wicked things. On the other hand, part of their other aspect of their lives where they weren't wicked. Do we remove a statue because of the wicked part? You mean like you mean like when people are like running down and knocking off Abraham Lincoln's head? I mean, all like the extreme of like Robert E. Lee or like kind of like Confederate generals. Well, yeah, in London here, we've got, well, you, you, you know about the Scout, basically a group for young kids from all backgrounds, irrespective of colour, well, basically anything, really. The guy who started it off, although he started this amazingly wonderful good cause, there were other aspects of his life which are, to say the least, questionable in terms of allegedly racist. So, therefore, do we then remove his statue you see what I mean? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, but I think, and I think also another interesting kind of power dynamic that's also happening, you know, like 
you know, my generation, a lot of us don't have any money. We don't have property. We don't have assets. We don't have stock, anything like that. But what we do have is like, you know, social media power. <laughs> and like, you know, mm. even though it might feel like kind of wild and like kind of reckless sometimes, but what happens when you have power <laughs> in some ways and like they're knocking down everything, you know, everything that hurts. Like this is the power we have in our culture right now to when it comes to technology and like, you know, messaging. Mm. Yeah. The, the trouble with social media power is that it's too often it's those who shout the loudest are heard the most. But just because someone shouts the loudest, it doesn't mean that what they're saying is correct. Yeah, yeah. You can be on social media. I don't know if you experienced this. Sometimes you have friends who share either like, you know, really old stuff that like, you know, Robert Williams died, like sharing it. Like he just like, they just found out he died. Like people be sharing old stuff or sometimes, you know, total misinformation before they share breaking news, before they share something that's like actually true. You know, people share yeah. fake stuff and you, and you sit there on your social media feed wondering like, how can you do this on the internet where like you can just open a tab mm. and Google it and see if it's true or not. <laughs> but people don't. People just like see the, the headline and share it. Yeah. In America, you're over 5 million people now who have contracted this disgusting disease. And there's a person I know in the UK where they say, you know, I don't believe everything. In fact, it's getting to the point that people here are not sure whether to believe the government when they come up with one set of figures in the UK or another set of figures in the UK because no one knows what to believe. Google has the fi- is the final arbitrator, is the final judge in terms of what is true. And I've always said to this person, why don't you just open your eyes and see for yourself what is true? And that must be true in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement. You can see for yourself what is going on. Here at home, as George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and a never-ending list of innocent people of color continue to be murdered stating the simple fact that a black life matters is still met with derision from the nation's highest office. Whenever we look to this White House for some leadership or consolation or any semblance of steadiness, what we get instead is chaos, division, and a total and utter lack of empathy. This particular um, wave right now, when it comes to Black Lives Matter after the Floyd, George Floyd murder, a lot of white people in the suburbs and are part of it as well, way more than like any other kind of thing that I can remember. That makes it even more kind of a awakening moment and culturally for the United States, white allies, white comrades. I know Fox News doesn't like that term, but we're working together um, for same like objectives. You know, we all feel disempowered by the same system and, um, we all want justice and we all want kind of, you know, equity in society that shows it doesn't give that at all. So a lot of people are now saying that you can't say the term all lives matter because that is offensive. Yeah. Whilst all lives do matter, in reality, the truth is, is that unless you're black, you won't be the person that the police are going to be picking on all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like having a friend that says they have some sort of terminal ill cancer and then you reply to them saying that, what about all the other people with cancer? Why have to worry about your cancer? You know, it's like, you know, like why, why, why do you say that to somebody? Why do you say to a friend who has, who's dealing with like terminal 
terminal illness. And like, so, so that's what, that's what all lives matter. I, mean, I don't think it's a, it's not offensive in the way of like yelling an N word out of a pickup truck. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's definitely, definitely a problem that needs to get solved recently in the past, like few months dealing with the, the COVID-19 pandemic, everything slows down and, um, and you expect like kind of a community effort to get through this in the beginning when it first started, but instead you got kind of like states scrambling to like get um, masks and like like hospital equipment. And it was this kind of craziness that was happening between states because we had no federal leadership, and then yeah, um, people are staying home and, and like losing their jobs and the scale that's like beyond like the Great Depression, I guess at this point. Other Countries with way less resources than, than us. People got really angry, and then black people are still being murdered by police. There's not even that people driving around anymore. Yet cops are still killing people, and it was like a breaking point. We keep on seeing various states saying it is our right not to wear a mask, and we're just thinking: Are these people really dumb? People are going to be studying what's going on for a long time about this. I just feel like it's a combination of like, they teach like shitty social studies and math and science to people in schools. <laughs> and then, um, and then also I feel like, you know, before, before the anti-mask thing really became like an actual like thing that was like actually killing people now. Um, I remember like the we reopen rallies. They had like these kind of tiny reopen rallies. It wasn't like in the scale of like, you see with George Floyd um, rallies, but it got this like kind of micro like lens coverage by the mainstream media. It was just like some like, just like angry people in front of like Baskin Robbins in front of the nail salon wanting to like reopen it. And I mean, it got this like exposure that was like kind of unnecessarily too much for it. And including Trump's rhetoric. And I feel like this anti-masking really caught on more than it, it shouldn't have. I was asked by the BBC to talk about one of the ice cream brands, Ben & Jerry's. In the UK, there's been an uproar about immigrants coming over on dinghies from um, France. Ben & Jerry's started to talk about, we need to support the immigrants. And then they also did stuff to do with Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. Yeah, but Ben & Jerry's has always been real for a long time. They always support, like, entire, like, the military anti-imperialism work, you know, and, uh, LGBT IQ work. That Ben and Jerry's kind of like the real one. But when it comes to like seeing other companies, it's been like nails in the chalkboard from like changing, getting Aunt Jemima off like the syrup and stuff like that to like you know, um, you know, companies making like Black Lives Matter sec- black sections on their websites now that never done it before. What they call virtue signaling. Bands are just jumping on the on the bandwagon 
I said his brand, you know, just to say, hey, look, we're cool as well as everybody else. And it's like, and to me, it's, it, it makes, it disturbs me. It's like watching a white man dance. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I get it with Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, yeah. It's in their DNA. Yeah, but it's also part of their, you know, like they've, they've figured out the way to do it enough that, that doesn't piss people off enough. Reminds me of these white men dancing. It's like, you know, you get all these guys who start saying that, you know, we're with you all the way. Yeah. I wonder if all these people, when it comes to treating their employees in everyday life, it just makes me wonder. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, we're talking about, of course, George. But, you know, another. I'm sorry, I'm just angry here, Messiah, because what about people like Jimmy Lee Jackson? What about Clyde Kennard? These are people that people have never heard of. Juliet Hampton Morgan, uh, the Reverend James Reeb, uh, uh, Jonathan Myrick Daniels, uh, Vernon Dharma, O'Neill Moore. For most people, they won't know who these people were. These are people to do with civil rights. They died trying to stamp out this racism. Do you think the black community themselves know enough about this stuff? No, no. I mean, it took um, pretty much people burning down the Minneapolis police station for, like, you know, this kind of reaction to, to like, corporate kind of pandering and white guilt and, like, um, I don't know, like, you know, it's like a psychological thing. Like, you know, even though it'd be like finding out um, a relative was been to an abusive situation, and like even though um, you knew about it the whole time, and um, and now everyone knows about it now, not just you, and you feel kind of guilty that you stood around and knew it. So I think a lot of people, like companies, are reacting to that, but also they make they want to make money, they don't want to use black business. You know, that's that's the reality of it. Yeah, we're not toward that history well at all. I mean, like you go to elementary school, you just showing like a picture of like Egypt and like some slaves and Martin Luther King and Obama. And that's like pretty much like black history, American black history. So like we never really taught the nuances of organizing the civil rights movement, like um, um, the civil rights movement in multiple times in history, like different generations in the early twenties to like the forties, you know, the communist party, black people dealing with that. Like we have no context of anything really, you know, like how, how do organizers even get money to even go out there with signs? Like we have no context of like how, any of these mechanisms work for organizing and mobilizing. So, of course, it's going to feel disempowering to, like, not know any of this kind of knowledge and not be connected to it, you know. But once you see it and once you understand it, you know, that's what social media allows it to be passed around so much. Now you see, like, like Occupy kind of showed the example of, like, people replicating a tactic all over the world in an easy way. Um, yeah, so, like, I mean, now, like, now we're slowly gaining those kind of skills, but in learning, getting those kind of histories toward again. Mm-hmm. Biden has now picked uh, Kamala Harris as his running mate, and she's Afro-American. Is it another example of virtual signaling, considering that uh, I've been watching footage of her really criticizing uh, Biden in the past for his stance on social issues? Slamming him on a personal level, like on on the debate stage. <laughs> it feels cool to see someone get slammed, slam someone like that and then get hired. <laughs> but, but like <laughs> the political climate in this country is so horrible that people vote for like, you know, a sack of potatoes with a hat on it at this point. She actually, she does have a history of like, I mean, she was senator voting for Bernie. She also has that credit to her. And she, I mean, but uh, as a prosecutor, 
she fell in line with, you know, just like how law enforcement, the police and the court systems work fast. I mean, it's a very strong system, powerful system, but at least hopefully she has that knowledge. And as a VP, can really like make Biden remember that he helped pass the crime bill, 1994 crime bill, and like undo a lot of it. Um, and, and, and it's important to undo it because that will fix all the problems, all the crises right now. We undo stuff from that crime bills. I need to learn commitment. Whoa. I need to quit my joking. Yeah, I need a boat of bitches. Uh, that's where my mind been floating. Mm. Ain't trying to fuck this bread up. No, I need to get more focused. Yeah, I need to smoke forever. Yeah, I need to sell my roaches. Uh, talking empty homes with the fridge in it. Talking juice cartons with a sip in it. Talking ham sandwich with the chips in it. I admit, nigga, I'm a full stand popping white tea, rocking swap me, shopping Instagram, watching DM hopping. Niggas know the deal. Now they know I got it. Now they know I got it. Ooh. I used to be so humble. Whoa, I need to call my mama. Yeah. Now, earlier you mentioned the N-word. Another big debate over here is the use of the N-word. With a lot of uh, songs, rappers and so on and so forth, the N-word is used all over the place. So it's really difficult for people of colour to moan about the N-word if if they're singing about the N-word. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like, I mean, for my knowledge of the N-word, I mean, I like to go to, like, Richard Pryor and, like, Paul Mooney. I think they're, like, almost like the operators, the operators of the N-word and the philosophy around it in some ways and why people use it and when to use it, when to not use it and stuff like that. And I feel like, I don't know, it's like, I mean, how did the N-word even come about? Did some foreign slave master kept saying Negro wrong by accident. I mean, that's how it started. Who knows? But now it's here. Yeah. It was a very disempowering word. You know, it's like faggot. If people started calling me a yid, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would be offended. Yeah. But the difference is yeah, my yeah. people don't release songs into the music charts, you know, saying, hey, yid, how you doing? Yeah, yeah. Black people... Release songs saying, hey, and then the word comes out. I mean, I feel like it's like a, a, it really disempowers what the word meant just like 50 years ago, just 100 years ago. It takes away that power that you used to have like when like you, you heard heard people yell at you while you were down the street. Now it's just heard all the time. It's just like kind of like a weird psychological like kind of tactic to like retake, you know, agency. Um, that a lot of times our community doesn't have agency in a lot of things. And, and like I, and like I said, like culturally, a lot of times groups, oppressed groups use culture as their weapon to defend themselves, to, you know, the, uh, the rally around themselves. And I feel like the N word has kind of been like a, an example of that. Like people taking back the word to the point that it's almost nonsensical. Yeah. People will start being treated better because we've all had this epiphany moment. I think we're dealing with some real bullies who don't want to lose power. So at first, it's not going to be cool and nice and kind. Um, but but I understand like the positive thinking of like we want to go towards a world of like you know empathy and like understanding and kindness. But at the moment, we're dealing with like serious bullies who who don't listen to that kind of stuff. So um so we have to do a little more different tactics to that to get to that kindness to get to the empathy. How do we deal with the bullies then? Even though we were in the middle of a pandemic, people are going out to protest. Trump actually is he's a strong man, so that was the first thing he tried to do was show that he can go out there with no mask and breathing people's air and stuff like that. And then you have these protests. Middle of the pandemic, these really brave people, millions of people going out in the street too, 
middle of the pandemic, showing that they're strong, showing that they're tough. That was that was really it, it, it was really intimidating to them. So you had that situation in the White House when he walked across there, really historic situation when he tear gas protesters in front of the White House, in front of a church, um, to show that he's strong because he felt threatened by it. So I mean, we have to. Sh- this is how you deal with bullies in some ways, unfortunately. Mm. The boycotts, all those situations that happened to the rights movement didn't take a few weeks or a couple of days. So it took months of like um, resistance and standing your ground and being a presence in space that usually not in for months um, for them to like get desegregate the buses in Montgomery. So you oh, have to understand these kind of struggles take a while and it means to stand on the ground and showing that we exist. Mm. Black Lives Matter, just showing that we exist makes people nervous, makes people, I mean, this is how you deal with, do, with you have to deal with bullies in that way, you know, and then, um, so that's why I feel. Yeah. Sadly, in fact, tragically, is not being heard are people who have been incarcerated in prisons in America. You hear like the authoritarian stories about China, but at the same time, they don't have millions of people in jail, in prison. Some reason we have that here in the United States. The authorities would argue that these people have committed a crime, and if you commit a crime, you do the time. It's really simple. Everyone did something bad to be in jail you know that's what everyone thinks you know like that's just what you think so you're saying that there's people in the prisons yeah. who haven't done anything bad they didn't murder anyone they didn't crimes they didn't they didn't affect someone else you know a bodily harm like either like non drug offenses or like maybe credit card fraud with a, a big giant corporation like you saw with Joyce Floyd that he was murdered over like allegedly a $20 counterfeit bill this is the kind of stuff that people go to jail in prison for. And they go to prison because they don't know how to deal with these kind of cases. And um, and you have to cycle with citizenism that happens. So, If the law says you shouldn't do something, and then you say, well, you know what, I'm going to accept that I will be punished if I don't do that thing at a 10% extreme. But if I did it at a 5% extreme, say it's just credit card fraud, then I shouldn't be punished. I was bad, but I wasn't that bad. There's some major cities in the United States where pretty much half of the city's budget, or more than half of the city budget, is the police department, is law enforcement department. So, like, why are you? So you have these crimes happening. Why are these crimes happening in the city? Because they don't have, you know, educational resources. They don't have, you know, employment resources. They don't have housing resources. But they have this giant bloated police force. You know the the the. So what does that even mean for for society as well? You know, the, the conversation right away is just why are people committing crimes? Not like why like why are people in these situations in the first place? In all of these cities and all of these towns, most people when it comes to poverty crimes or drug crimes, if people's interaction first interaction instead of a social worker instead of like any other kind of mental health specialist or anything like that is a uh, is a police officer, then you're gonna have yeah crime happening in the, a lot in your neighborhood. But if your city doesn't have, you know, free daycare, or doesn't have anything for people in your neighborhood to help people, then what do you think is going to happen to people who don't have jobs, people who 
So, I mean, it's just like, it's just thinking in the bigger picture when it comes to, okay, like I'm not committing crimes, so, but why are people committing crimes in my city? Why is my crime rate so high? You know, because they're closing schools down. Yeah. I mean, we live in a very hyper individualistic society, but we just think about ourselves in individual terms. Yeah. It's all about me, 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 me. We can use social media to, to protest, to have our voices heard. But actually, it's actually ruining an entire generation because everyone has these expectations that it's got to be me, 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 me. I mean, I think even before social media was kind of like me, 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 but now it's kind of going to a level that's like almost like you have your own newspaper. You wake up in the morning, you have a newspaper just for you. You have a TV channel just for you. Um, I mean, that's what it feels like now. So as if that kind of breaks up a community in some ways, you know, we're not sharing the same kind of shared nightly TV news experience anymore and stuff like that. We go on Facebook and you kind of have your own bubble algorithm bubbles in some ways, you know, which is, doesn't feel good in some ways. Yeah. And all these algorithms are controlled by just four different companies. It's, it's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? I, I want to be able to like see different perspective, not just what I like to see, you know, um, but they want to sell stuff to us. So they want, they want to know what we what we like rather than like what's going to teach us, what's going to make us better. So they just want to sell things. So that's like the end game of all this kind of stuff. So what truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. With the presidential election coming up, algorithms are going to make sure that if they feel that a community wants to hear a certain message, then they will only ever hear that message for the Democrats or for the Republicans. It's been like Venn diagrams of like 1984, a brave new world in Fahrenheit 481. It's like, this is like the kind of future. We're like in the middle of all those different dystopic novels right now. It's like all those things are happening. Mm. So does this go back to what I said to my friend, that the only way to know the truth is not to rely on Google, but to rely on what you see with your eyes? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty true, yeah. You're a person who makes a sea with our eyes. You kind of highlight the plights of people who often don't get heard, yeah, never mind about seen. Um, I mean, right now I'm working on like kind of like, it's kind of like a live stream show for this um, outlet called Act TV. Right. It's called Black Power Magic Hour, and it's like a live stream show. Um, we do kind of like news we do um like funny like clips of movies and it's a twitch and yeah. facebook and um and youtube show but it's going to start up on twitch again soon and then be clips on youtube brilliant which project that you've worked on in the past have you been most proud of uh i don't know i, I guess i've been proud of um the the black black photoshop history that was really incredible i recommend that uh, people check that out that's black but then another one, I guess another one now thinking hard would be um we we whites only in Garden City. Um uh it's, it's a short it's a short documentary I made. It got into like the Black Star Film Festival in 2014. Um it's called Whites Only in Garden City, and it deals with this fundamental residential housing discrimination, like those white community in Long Island, New York, um pretty much was discriminated against um Black potential black homeowners renters in this in this town. Fair Housing Act is supposed to like 
help um, remedy these situations. Trump is actually trying to repair this law openly, um, talking about how he wants to keep the suburbs the suburbs pretty much. This short kind of talks about this kind of doublespeak that, you know, the white man uses the code words for like suburbs and like the white majority, the silent majority. This is what they mean is keeping black people out of the suburbs pretty much. Mm. People have the right to home. People have a right to mental health care when things are difficult because of economic circumstances, that they have social care workers there who are on their side because at the end of the day, we are all human beings. So for everybody, take some lessons from uh, what Messiah has told us. We are in this together and uh, let's try and make this wonderful world of ours even more wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. That was great. Until next time. See you soon. Brandon fight across the ocean. Another man, man, I'm stuck again. Brandon fight across the ocean. Another man, man, I'm stuck again. Sitting down here, fall out of shelter. Paint my walls twice a week. Sitting down here, fall out of shelter. Think about the slave. Long time ago, ten million slaves across the ocean. They had shackles on their legs. Have you got an opinion on this show? Perhaps you would like to share your own story with the world. You can DM us or contact reinventatme.com. If you're looking for award-winning, world-class content strategy that builds your brand, once again, simply email reinventatme.com That's reinventatme.com Sun goes out You'll be standing You'll be standing By yourself Sun goes out You'll be standing You'll be standing By yourself Ten minutes late, cause the ocean, they had shackles on the lake.